0: And then you find out it's not so much. <laughs> so so no. self-fulfilling
1: prophecy blown to smithereens yes. is really what that is. Right, right,
0: right.
2: Oh, you're right. I am smarter <laughs> than you. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. You were able to start this whole. You're this whole smarter thing,
1: differently. Right? <laughs> our...
2: Yes, yes. Yes. Different is my middle name. Yes.
0: So at the back of my mind is this discussion that's going on on, the SIG13 listserv about, you know, which side of the Grand Canyon are you on? And there are some interesting opinions being put up there. And we were also talking a little bit about this before we started. So, my my own bias is that we, unlike many of the postings, I think we have to stop thinking about how much content we ram into people's heads. And this, this links to the, the topic of being able to judge the quality of something, whether it's a blog or a research paper. And I'm just going to put a sort of some floaty ideas out there to the educators that I would actually start decreasing the content that we're putting into clinical programs, or at least not increasing it until we've got specific classes in critical thinking, which is not the same as a statistics class. and. Specific classes in clinical decision making, and specific classes, maybe even in law, in understanding things like the CMS regulations, that isn't touched on in our program. Understanding, you know, we like to think that we get students at least to look at the ASHA code of ethics, but those, what is that? (laughs) Well, you're not very ethical, so you probably well, Well, ASHA (laughs)
1: moved it on the website, so it's hard for her to
2: find it. Yes,
0: it's no longer on the policy (laughs) standards page. So. Um, And, and our skill now is going to be to get people to think differently and think smarter. And I had one of the clinical doctoral people in here, and she's going to graduate in a couple of weeks' time. And she said, my goodness, you know, I can't, I can't believe it's gone so fast. And I remember sitting in this desk in May 2015 or 16, and you said that your job was to teach me to think differently, not to do loads of advanced seminars in X, Y, and Z, but to actually change the way people approach things and think about things. And I think that's, that's definitely a purpose of further or higher education. But I don't know that we're, that educators are so good at doing that, or, and or they're terrified that they, if they don't teach all the content, someone's going to start questioning them. But we know we've got people out in practice who are, who've got through programs full of content and still are making poor decisions. And so more content, I don't think, is the answer. And if we could get those people to think differently, they, they possibly would be better consumers of research and other sources, um, Facebook pages or whatever else, but they'd be able to judge the crap from the cream and and that's that's something i would push for it even at a master's level in education it's too late by the time people are doing phds or clinical doctors so
1: I, i'd like to add one thought that's an experience that i heard in my own master's program and one that kind of adds to what you just said so regarding the content in the master's program I was, as you can imagine, the inquisitive student. And I could be at times unrelenting with a professor to ask questions when they were not clear. So one of the things that evidently got back to my advisor at the time was that I was personally consuming too much time in the master's courses asking questions. Okay. So I, as you can imagine, my academic advisor evidently had a discussion with my thesis advisor. And my thesis advisor and my academic advisor both came to me in very different ways to say, I need to cool it. I need to back away from the questions. And, you know, back in the day, I won't say when there wasn't email. It was a non option. So, either you attended office hours or you asked in the middle of class. It was effectively the only two options that were available to you. And the explanation that my thesis advisor gave me was very simply we have X amount of time to drill into your skull, X amount of content. And the amount of questions or the number of questions, I, I, let me be very clear. I wasn't asking 40 questions a class. Okay. And it wasn't every class that I was asking questions, but I was asking enough when things were not clear and I saw people's heads turning to each other saying, what did he say? Or how's that? Or, you know, so I was the one who was a little bit more outspoken. So the appearance was that Marty was the one who was the troublemaker, right? And in the class of 30, I was the one who asked the questions. So what ultimately came was, we only have this amount of time, this amount of content needs to fit within this amount of time, and you're taking away from our amount of time in order to get this content in. You know, on the face of it, it struck me obtusely because, damn it, I'm paying for an education. I want an education. You know, you take the student stance who basically doesn't have any power, that perspective. On the other side, I totally understood that. But the professors were busy. They were busy with their other demands. If I'm not going to do it in class time and I can't meet them during office hours and I'd have to go through scheduling appointments, et cetera, et cetera, who's going to suffer here? And ultimately, the answer is me, because nothing off of them, if I don't have my question answered and you were to ask this on a test, the consequences lay on me, not you. And therein lies the issue. Okay, so to that end, and more to the point that you just made, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, we talk about having a critical eye. We talk about reviewing things robustly. Why don't we just start with clarity and not necessarily with the critical eye, but a critical eye toward is what we're reading or what we're listening to clear? And by that, I mean, similar to what you were saying, one of the quality marks in any systematic review, one of the tests, if you will, for bias, information bias specifically, is whether the methods are transparent enough to be replicated. That's what I'm talking about, clarity. Is the article that you're reading, can you teach from that article? Can you understand what was done in the research to the point where you can have a conversation with somebody that you're sitting next to at a, at a lunch table, that you're explaining to at a journal club, or that you bring to a conference and say, this is what was done. And I feel definitive and clear about it. And if we chose to, we could do this too. I think that's a good place to start. Is the article clear?
2: Well, and I think, I mean, to sum up kind of both of what you guys are saying, there's not enough time to cover all this content, just not enough time. And yet there are seminal papers that were written even 20 years ago in the Dysphagia Journal that some of our students have never heard of. I mean, even think of just like the Susan Langmore's predictors of of pneumonia. How many people still have never heard of that paper? And then there's other professors that say it was, you know, a seminal work in our field. So I think, until every student or every clinician knows every paper that's in our field, we can't be saying that blogs and podcasts and other streams of medium are not, reputa- not reputable or not credible because it's, dis- it's disseminating the information.
1: That's exactly right. I, I, I think we were talking about this off air, but I, you know, it's one of those situations where you can't simply look at it and say, I don't like it. It sounds like my seven-year-old who looks at a a stalk of asparagus and says, I don't like that. And I look at her and I say, have you tried it? And she'd look at me and say, no, I don't like that. Well, then don't tell me you don't like it. You can tell me you don't want it. That's a choice. But don't offer the opinion of you don't like that, of course. Having that conversation with a seven-year-old is well beyond... (laughs) the scope of any table discussion at dinner. But the point here is that if you haven't tried, but I think it's the same same argument, argument. (laughs) you know, you need to be able to sit and listen, just do me the favor. And of course the people who don't like podcasts aren't going to hear this. Right. But I'm going to say it anyway, for those of us who are even thinking about something that comes across the table, quote unquote, and they think they don't like it. What I'm going to say is try it once. It's not going to kill you in most cases. It's not even going to maim, deprive, or take any meaningful quality of life away from you. Spend a few moments with it. If you like it, wonderful. Have a second helping. Enjoy those mashed potatoes. Okay? If you don't like it, great. It's probably not for you. And as a very direct result of that, you can move on to the next thing but at least you can form an educated opinion and an educated opinion is worth more than just an opinion based on nothing.
2: Well, and I just, I want to go back to also, I, a few weeks ago, I was at, um, a a business seminar that I went to. And all morning was just straight content, right? Just similar to our typical CEU courses, just all content, all content, all content. So we go to lunch. After lunch, she said, okay, this is implementation hour. And everyone was like, what the heck are you talking? What does that mean? And she said, I want you to sit with the information that you learned this morning. And I want you to apply it to your business. And it kind of... It like hit me like a ton of bricks because I was just thinking how incredibly useful would it be if at some of these CEU events or just as you're talking the lack of critical thinking skills the lack of clinical applicability what if we just had to sit with the information that we learned and now apply it to our patients here and now and how it how it applies then i feel like so many times we like you said we're just bombarded with content we're constantly learning more read more journal articles but then we never take the time to sit with it and figure out how it serves us.
0: So that's one of the things that I do in the, um, when I do a big session at a state meeting or something is, you know, I'll I'll go through things to do with ethics and law and whatever in, in the morning from the first part. And then in the second part, I will get people applying that information. And one of my favorite things is I have pulled a number of queries verbatim from a SIG listserv and and I say I divide people up into groups I say okay given the information we learned this morning what what can how can you advise this person how can you help them out with their clinical query partly because it's much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is to look at our own stuff and give advice but in working through that and they work in groups so again they're talking about things right they're sharing opinions they're they're evaluating what they've done in the morning and thinking of its applicability in ways in a group that you can't think of on your own. And we know this in focus group research, you get much richer information than you do from single person interviews because of this synergistic effect of hearing someone else question or say something that then creates another thing in your mind. And, I love reading the reviews and the comments on, you know, whether it's Amazon or the Guardian newspaper article. I'm much more interested in in how people have applied this thing or used it or thought about it than I am necessarily in the thing itself. I think we just solved right. everybody's problems. Okay. <laughs> on
1: okay. to the next thing.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can we do <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Sure.
1: <laughs> it, it's, it, I think in some sense, there's that social media broadly has a stigma that comes with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, truth be known. Yes, I'm on Twitter. People know I'm on Twitter. Many people do anyway. It took me the, the untold story here is that it took the person who recommended Twitter to me more than two years to convince me to get on it. And the reasons for it were stigmata. It it was um, what I perceived to be a negative thing, what I perceived to be a sinkhole of time, uh, what I perceive to be no reward or minimal reward relative to a huge amount of resources. Some of that still exists. There is still negative stuff on Twitter. I don't pay attention to that negative stuff. In fact, it's nowhere near me in in the Twitterverse. Is that a real word? Is that right? I think so. Okay. I don't want to. You know, there's another one to add to Miriam's dictionary, right? Yeah so it's it's one of those things that i was largely ignorant and then i you know to quote the bible in some sense saw the light and the light was good and in fact strange as it may sound it's one of the primary resources i have for new literature that's out there i primarily use twitter to find these new articles that will never come into my inbox that i'm never going to search on pubmed these cool projects that people are doing that i had no concept in the world was even an interest to them let alone this research project that they did you know of course the endorphins are wonderful when people like and retweet the stuff that you do and that's wonderful that's good um but i'm not on it for that i'm on it for information I'm on it to network with people who know more about stuff that I want to know more about that stuff. And I think the bottom line here is that once you get into these social media areas, and I think you do need to be a little bit choosy, but once you get into these social media areas, yes, you could be surrounded by negative and negativity if you choose to be. But there are sufficient controls in 2018 that you don't need to be anywhere near that, that you can filter yourself from that or at least avoid it in most circumstances. Again, I've reformed. I've now a a better understanding of how it works. But perhaps what we're dealing with is just the unknown Mm -hmm. or the people who are just not, they're ignorant Um, in a positive way. They're ignorant of what these things really are all about and what they're capable of. You know, I, again, I, you know, for the same thing that I say, I'm on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook. Okay. It's where I've chosen not to be. That's it. Yeah. I don't know Facebook. I can't offer any opinion whatsoever. I've heard good things and I've heard not so good things. Same thing as I did Twitter, but I have no knowledge of Facebook and I'm fine with that.
2: Well, and, and, you know, I've kind of gone the unpopular route, I guess, and that I, you know, created my own Facebook group out of frustration of the other Facebook groups that were just free-for-alls and you could be mean and you could say biased things to people and I wanted to create my own group and I do filter it. And people get angry because it's filtered, but I'm not going to let people talk to each other in a crappy way. So if you're going to come and be crappy, you're going to get your stuff deleted.
1: But I think that's so, responsibility. Yeah, and and it's that's been responsible. It's
2: definitely been. A, I've gotten really positive feedback about that. There's some researchers that are in my group that have you know commended me for the way that I handle it, and then there's other people that think that it's whatever they go on their own you know, tangents about it, but it's what I've chosen to do. And if you don't like it, it, go create your own sandbox, but that's mine.
1: That's right. So. Paula, what, what's been your experience with social media? I know you're on Twitter to some minimal degree anyway, from what I can see, but what's been your experience? What's your philosophy?
0: (laughs) My philosophy. Let's see. I do exist on Facebook. Only originally because my my nephew, who lives uh, thousands of miles away, when he was born, my brother could post pictures of him. Uh, so, we had a little family group. And I won't be Facebook friends with people who are currently students. If once they graduate, they decide it's an okay thing to do, that's fine. I don't spend a lot of time in Facebook. You can kind of disappear off down there and you know, the next thing you come up and it's five hours later and the sun's gone down. I have found some troubling things about people who, and that's, yeah, this is a kind of good philosophical question. I found out that someone who I I kind of know reasonably well, don't see that often, um, like working with was actually very into guns and survivalist stuff and all that kind of thing. And I thought, oh my God, that's not the kind of person I want to hang out with. But I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for Facebook. And so then, you know, is it still the same person? I don't know. For the same brother, I got into LinkedIn and... So he could have a professor because he has a different name to me. Um, he could have a professor on his LinkedIn contacts. You see, this is what my family thinks of me. Kind of like, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I keep that strictly for, prof- you know, professional contacts. In fact, I don't, I don't even post anything on it. I won't add friends to my list or whatever it is you do, contact, unless I know the person or unless they write and tell me. And one of the interesting things is I'm quite – well, I'm always getting these friend requests that are the automatic default. Hello, I want to be your friend. And I actually put on my page, please remind me how I know you because I have a nine-second memory. And people don't read it, so I just delete them because I do view LinkedIn as a kind of – and not sanctioning, but, you know, if you're friends with someone, it's, uh, help me out with the words here, you two. I have no words by this point in the term. Association? Yeah, but like a commendation, right? Okay. If, if I'm prepared to be your contact. And then there's the Twitter thing. So my friend Justin Rowe in London opened a Twitter account for me. I was physically there a couple of years ago. And said, you've got to go into this thing. This is it. And I'm like, okay, Justin, whatever. And I didn't use it for a year. And then our social media person in the school said to me a few months ago, you're all over the tweeter sphere. That's what she called it. You're all over the tweeter sphere. Will you tweet for the school? And I said, well, I don't tweet for anyone. She said, yes, but you're all over the place. And I said, well, I just have friends who clearly have nothing better to do. So <laughs> I took on the job of tweeting for the school in a very small way, cause she actually is the official tweet of the school, but I use it to share good work that we're doing here, particularly with people in Britain and vice versa. And I promote things like a PT students won an award or, you know, there's going to be a brilliant podcast coming off on swallow your pride. And I don't think about it as for any personal metrics. I just, you know, Asha, I, now that I know how to take a photograph and tweet it, um, I was just getting stuff out there, just promoting and, and sharing stuff. Um, I, there are metrics that are used. And, in fact, uh, Justin, who um, is at one of the London universities, they actually look at your, your Twitter metrics, how many people are engaging with you, how many people are retweeting what you say. Institutions are actually getting very – interested in this as a demonstration of people's impact in the world and engagement with the world which is very different to just how many research papers you're pumping out because exactly that doesn't right. that doesn't show any form of engagement and i was just thinking something something that i think marty said earlier on skipping back to papers and engagement I have actually written to two or three authors about things that were either clearly wrong in their papers or I just didn't understand it. And one of the wrong things, um, there was a person who did a big um, data review in voice and then did a big data review in swallowing and used the same figure. (laughs) And it got published. And I'm reading this paper and I'm thinking, do you know, That looks like the one from the voice paper. And so I wrote to this person, and this person said, Oh, yes, yeah, there was a mistake in the publishing. And, but what if readers, whether they're researchers or clinicians or clinical researchers or researching clinicians, when they didn't understand something, they wrote back to the author, because you can do it now by email, it's so quick, and say, I don't understand this bit. It was when you were talking about methods, Marty. I don't understand this bit. How did you do this thing? Or that's really interesting. Help me see how that would apply to my patients. Maybe that would be something that would change the way information is shared and engage people, particularly if the researchers were civil when they wrote back and tried to help people out. That would be a tiny one-by-one bridge. But that could be another way of, of getting these groups of people to talk to each other
1: in fact it's funny that you said that those words almost verbatim um but include included with the visuals of slides is what i presented at asha this year I, again it, it, it based on our previous conversations not just today but previous conversations of of uh, effectively how great britain is and how you know walled off uh researchers and clinicians are in this country that drove me nuts. Um, And it led to an ASHA submission that was ultimately accepted. And we presented that in front of, well, it was Saturday afternoon at 3.45. So we had 30 people in the room, but it was a good conversation. So take that for whatever it was worth.
0: We had 25 of your people, I think, in our room, (laughs) me and (laughs) Louise.
1: So, you know, Emily Mayfield, uh, Marnie Simon, and I presented on this bridging the gap about value in dysphagia clinical work, but part of value was getting at the information that's needed to do your QA, QI kind of information that's based on evidence And that section of it is what I presented as you need to contact the authors. And Oh, by the way, they laid out the red carpet and the welcome mat that says here Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the first page. In most circumstances, they gave you the author's contact information, Mm -hmm. take advantage of that. Um, And that's really, you know, people are clinicians broadly are reticent to, want to contact authors, researchers. I don't know why. I, I, I think it's just this, you know, thing about the Atlantic Ocean again, but it's just one of the things I, I just, it mystifies me because you're willing to walk up to me after I present at a conference, you're willing to, you know, buy me a drink in a bar, although that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where you won't email me. I, I don't get that. The systematic reviews that I've done, I've sent out quite literally dozens of emails to these authors saying, you're not clear here. I'm including your information in a systematic review. Please respond to me. The, you know, I, I'll and, and I think, frankly, that there is a time bias here. Um, articles that are early on, you know, the emails may be going into a black hole for all I know. Or there isn't an email from an article that was written in 1972, or perhaps the author is deceased, and I can't get at the information. But that aside, the more current articles, Mm -hmm. most of the authors do respond, and they're very prompt to do it. Mm -hmm. In fact, I just emailed one yesterday, and this guy was on a chain of emails from our lab that was three long in the series, talking about how to score a more sensitive CAMICU. Um, it's one of those things where I am not bashful about asking for clarification um, because I can't proceed with the duties that I have, whether they're clinical research or the combination of the two, if I don't have a full set of information. So I I think clinicians really need to approach authors who are writing these articles when things are not clear, Mm -hmm. when things may have slipped by in the review process where maybe it was understood to the authors who wrote it and it was understood to the reviewers and it was understood by the editors, everybody, because they work in that field and they just implicitly get it. But to the people like us who are reading it, who are not necessarily familiar with this work and suddenly we're picking up the article, we may not understand it. So asking for clarification is an important thing that people just need to start initiating Mm -hmm. that. And I think you raise a really good point.
2: I've never, I don't know, never been one to be too quiet, but
1: I haven't. You? <laughs> <laughs> With I never... a podcast that reaches more than 15,000 people? No.
2: <laughs> it's 18,000 a week. Thank you. Sorry.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Anyways, um, I've just never thought twice about emailing someone. And then it turns into like a really nice dialogue. And then I'll go to, it's happened so many times, I'll end up going to like a conference or convention or something. And I'm with one of my friends and I see someone and they're like, oh, hi, Teresa, how are you? And I say, oh, hi. And they're like, how do you know that person? And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I emailed them about something and it turned into a nice dialogue and now we're colleagues. And I mean, that's exactly what happened with you. You read one of my blog posts and you sent me a message and then now we're friends. It's not, it's not rocket science. (laughs)
1: i I think <laughs> and that's part of I think what i what I refer to as breaking these glass walls, yeah, yeah, between the clinicians and the researchers, you know we're sitting there, you know in any given clinic, somebody's collecting data, somebody's doing you know therapy let's bust it out and make a sweet baby i mean let's go i had okay? a I
2: had a researcher come up to me this weekend and he was like i have a I have a wild question for you, and I was like, okay, and he's like you have like tons of fees recorded, don't you? And I was like, thousands. And he's like, do you have any of patients with Parkinson's? And I was like, probably hundreds. And he was like, well, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And like, it wasn't a thing to me, but like to him, the researcher, he like thought he just found this gold mine. And so I think that was another time that it hit me like, why are we not playing together better (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is a valuable As Clinicians are, aside from being on the ground, okay, and understanding what it means to treat a patient in, in the most contemporary as well as the most timely way in terms of, you know, you may have been a clinician, now you're a researcher and you haven't touched a patient in five years, okay? You're doing it every day and at least eight times a day, okay, for the eight patients that you see. But the other side of it is that you know, the, there's only one word that came to mind in terms of those fees videos, and that's repository. That is a goldmine to anybody who is looking to put together data in a retrospective study. That is exactly what, for example, the National Inpatient Sample is all about the nurse's health study is all about. They're collecting longitudinal data for decades on this stuff and getting just this little segment of time is a window into understanding the disease and the conditions and everything else. This is the kind of collaboration that we, that researchers and clinicians should be having at the very least. Yeah, That's what, I mean, that, that I don't makes me optimistic for the future.
2: I'm optimistic. <laughs> Paul, are you? I'm very optimistic. <laughs> She's shaking her pearls over there.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't have any um,
2: pearls today.
1: I, I, I'm thinking, you know, I, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking back to the <laughs> 1980s and the Corey Hart song um, that I need sunglasses at night for crying out loud to see the future that's ahead of us. You know, but we need to start working together, and that's the bottom line. You know, there are ways that we can do it. It's not me researcher, you clinician, me in ivory tower, you sitting in a basement or a closet somewhere. It, it that's that is not the perception. I, I, I really wish that I could speak for everybody, but I would say and be willing to walk out onto this limb. That's probably pretty strong saying. Most clinicians, most researchers believe that we're all human beings and that we can all work with and talk with each other. And that's where it all begins. We just need to reach out.
0: Yeah. Where did we start, Teresa? And we'll see if we can bring it back round to that point. Should we or should we not be recommending that our students or our clinicians or our colleagues view blogs and podcasts, view them or listen to them. Uh, Yes, I think it's not, it's like PowerPoint. PowerPoint itself isn't an inherently evil thing. It's the user or the writer. So to those professors saying only read research papers, I really hope that they're teaching their students how to judge those research papers uh, and if they are, then they'll, they need to get their heads around the fact that that's, they're teaching their students to judge quality and that can be applied to anything. The research paper, again, is just this tiny little speck of data. The, the way that's going to improve life is for someone to use it to support patient intervention. And for that, you need that thing to be batted around a bit. And that's, That's where review pages and blogs and panels and all that stuff, that's what's going to make this research come to life and help people.
1: I think I would offer this as a challenge to any educator that with any podcast, and I don't care where it comes from, JAMA, ATS, Teresa Swallow Your Pride or otherwise, it doesn't matter. But what I would offer is, Assign a single podcast and be critical about it. Compare the podcast with the journal article. Mm -hmm. Did it hit the highlights? Was the facts or were the facts accurate? Was the information presented in a biased fashion? And I mean that for the article as well as the podcast. And truly evaluate The quality of the information. Put it to the test. And if it passes your test, great. You have another resource that you can willfully and wholly entrust to students and yourself. If it doesn't pass your test, then that's worth reaching out to the person who is the proprietor of the podcast and say, maybe you might want to think about this.
2: I'll go find a new hobby at that point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I would put that challenge out there, out there to those who doubt as well as those who are absolute proponents of these media have the discussion. And I think it's very worthwhile to find out what quality really is the quality to a journal article is actually, I'd argue, somewhat similar to the quality of a podcast.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, I will add of a few of the constructive emails that I've gotten from people that have disagreed with the content. I've gone on the air and cleared the air. So I'm happy to take that constructive, constructive feedback. I just don't like emails from people that say that they just don't like anything we talk about. So I can't help you there. But she
0: does. They're just <laughs> jealous. I, I said,
1: Teresa does offer her own errata, so that's good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, all right. Any final? I think we've done our final thoughts. Our closing words. Uh-huh. I love this. Thank you so very much to both of you for having this conversation with me.
0: Pleasure. It was a pleasure as always. All right. I love hanging out with you, Beth.
2: I love hanging out with you guys Likewise.
0: too.
1: All right. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. To you as
0: well.